You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. We cover topics designed to accelerate your global expansion. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. So I'm Anka Corbin, your host today, and our guest is Mike Heilbrunner from Idea Legal in Portland, Oregon. Idea Legal is a law firm specializing in protecting the intellectual property for companies of all sizes around the world. So welcome, Mike, and thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself as well as sharing um, a little about Idea Legal itself. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Anka. Um, as you said, I'm president of Idea Legal. Idea Legal is a law firm that specializes almost exclusively now in brand protection and trademark registration strategies uh, and enforcement for companies um, mostly based in the U.S., but I also work with lots of international companies. And the focus of the work, again, is on trademarks, and so that would include things like searching and clearing um, new marks for potential registration in the U.S. and other countries. Um, It also involves helping companies um, come up with litigation and trademark enforcement strategies and then implementing those strategies when necessary. So that means including things like disputes and litigation. Um, I also work with companies on brand licensing and just generally other brand-related issues that can come up in a business's life cycle. Excellent. I think that's such a relevant topic right now. You know, when we met, you said something to me that really struck me because, you know, as a startup founder, I'm so busy putting my product together that I naively hadn't really considered international trademarking as such an urgent matter. I knew that I would eventually get to it, but you had said that, you know, trademarking is actually probably one of the first things um, you should do before you go into international markets. And, And so, you know, that said, why? Can you share with us, you know, why should companies consider international trademarking as just kind of one of the first steps before they go global? Well, um, the, the primary reason, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why companies should consider it, um, but the primary reason is that the way trademark law works around the world is that you can own a trademark or own rights to a trademark in one country, but that doesn't mean you own trademark rights in any other country unless you've done what you need to do to acquire those rights. And so the general system across the world for acquiring rights involves obtaining what's called a trademark registration. And each country around the world has its own trademark registration system and has its own trademark registration rules and laws around getting the registration and enforcing your rights. There's a limited limited exception that I'm going to talk about later involving the EU because you can get an EU-wide registration. But for the most part, it's a country-by-country approach. And in most countries, the United States being an exception I'll discuss, registration of a trademark is required to own trademark rights. If you don't have registration in a particular country, we really generally don't own anything. And that means somebody else might be able to register your mark and acquire rights in that country ahead of you. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk about how you prioritize and plan for where you might register, but you can imagine scenarios where you think you might want to enter it Uh, a market at some point, but you're not sure when, but you want to secure your rights, registration is a way to do that. In contrast, failure to register is a way to create risk um, that you might not be able to enter a market, even though you've planned on doing so for a long time. Um, From a startup perspective, I realize there's obviously a significant issue relating to limited resources, both from a personnel and financial perspective. So you're always making... um, choices about how to, how, how to allocate those real resources. And um, the interesting thing about trademarks that I've seen is that startups tend to focus so much on getting the business started and an operational issue that they sort of leave trademark law to the side, um, thinking they can deal with it later. And that's true for many countries that are not important key priorities at the beginning. Um, but one of the mistakes I think people make is assuming there's a high expense um, and it's not that it's cheap to get a trademark registration, but relative to other startup costs and challenges, trademark protection in key countries is relatively cheap. So in my view, the benefits of registration and the risks of not registering 
combined with the relatively low cost compared to other things that are happening during the startup stage, lend themselves to really focusing on trademark protection in key countries, not the whole world, in key countries at the beginning and beyond the startup uh, environment. And this is true for the largest companies. Later on, you focus on other potential countries where you might want registration protection. But at the beginning, you really have to really, I think it's important to pay attention to key markets. Um, and I'll talk more about that in detail. Um, one of the most important things to consider um, in terms of whether or not to obtain or try to obtain trademark protection in a particular country is that in most of the world, I said you need a registration. And in general, the rules around registration are uh, the general rule that applies to getting a registration and who has the right in a country is based on what's called the first to file rule. That means it's the first to file an application for a mark for particular goods and services in that country usually is the company that gets the right. Okay? Um, and that concept or the broader concept that that's about is called priority. So trademark lawyers would say priority is how you decide who owns a mark in a particular country. You might also use the word seniority. And it's all based on time. Who acquires the rights first is generally the owner. Okay. Um, and so that can come up as a need in a lot of contexts. Um, I've seen it obviously come up when you want to manufacture in a particular country. Uh, it comes up in any environment where you are currently or anticipating selling. Um, one of the most common scenarios that I've seen that gets overlooked is a situation that I think is probably going to apply to your clients, and that would be you exist in a country, let's say you're a U.S. company, it's your key market because you want to expand globally. And you might not have internal expertise to expand globally. You don't have an office in another country. You don't have sales reps in another country. So you're working with third parties. They could be independent sales reps. You could have a distributor relationship you're negotiating. You could be working with a licensee potentially. Um, and that's typically, in my experience, for smaller companies, the way they grow, the way they expand outside the U.S. And in most commercial contexts, that's the standard, and it happens all the time, and there's no problems. But in trademark law, there's some oddities that can come up in that situation. And the first-to-fire rule becomes really important there. Um, the oddities often involve the distributor you might be working with or the partner or licensee. They want to make sure they can sell the product that you're offering or the service that you're offering in their country. And so typically they'll ask the trademark owner that they're working with to register the mark. Okay. Sometimes they don't. Um, and sometimes the licensee and distributor might do it themselves. And usually they're doing that for good reasons. They want to protect their own interest in, the in, the, in that country. Um, problems can come up because under that circumstance, it's the licensee or the distributor that actually owns the rights there. And unless the company that they're working with, the U.S. company, has a contract that clearly says who gets to own the rights to the market in that country, um, Sometimes the company can actually lose its own rights in that country if the relationship with the distributor or licensee goes south at some point. And that doesn't happen a lot, but I've seen it happen. And so the first-to-file rule, this notion of priority, becomes important because businesses that are growing internationally are planning that growth. They're talking to other companies or distributors around the world, and they're not taking the time to stop and think about trademarks at that point and making sure they get the filing done. Um, so I just had an example this week, actually, with a client that was expanding to Brazil. They're talking to a partner in Brazil, and the talks broke down. And so the client told their instruction to me to apply to register a mark in Brazil. And I wrote back to them and I said, look, we may not want to seek full protection in Brazil today because you're not going to really be operating there now because the negotiations broke down. But I'm a little concerned that this distributor that you were talking about working with might not like the fact that the negotiations broke down. You might now have a not-so-great relationship with that distributor. And I'm worried they might apply to register the mark and block you from getting into Brazil. And so as a sort of defensive matter, we applied to register for some goods and services there, not all the ones we were planning on, for this purpose, to ensure that we didn't get blocked later, even though the distribution relationship never happened. It broke down. Um, so those are sort of some of the bigger picture issues to consider uh, when it comes to why trademark registration matters and the scenarios around time 
and allocating expenses when you need to think about allocating expenses. And some of the questions that you're going to ask later get into more detail around that, but those are, that's the big picture. Yeah, and that's a very um, uh, frightening picture in a way because you obviously, I mean, no one would want that scenario to happen. It is it not only limits you in doing business, but ultimately and potentially the value of your company if you don't actually own your intellectual property in those, you know, bigger markets. Um, but, you know, how does that differ, for example, from the approach that the United States has? Um, well, so there's some important differences. Um, the biggest difference in the United States compared to most of the world, and there's a few exceptions to this, but for most of the world, is that in the United States, trademark rights themselves are not acquired by registering a mark. Trademark rights are acquired by using a trademark. Again, there's just going to be exceptions and complexities to almost everything I say today, but um, I, it would be too involved for me to get into each one. So in the U.S., we have this notion of recognizing what are called common law trademark rights. Common law trademark rights are unregistered trademark rights. And they begin upon use, and they're valid and enforceable. They have a big limitation. The biggest limitation is that they're only valid and enforceable in the territories in which the mark is used. So if you're a restaurant, you might have one location, and you have use in that location. And you might have reputation in a city, so your reputation might expand throughout the city. And that means your common law unregistered rights might be in that city. You might have rights there in your mark. Another company, another restaurant in another city geographically remote might have rights for a restaurant for a similar mark. Okay? And so in the U.S., you can acquire rights without a registration, whereas, as I mentioned before, in almost most countries around the world, you need a registration to acquire rights. Okay? Um, right. So we probably have this false sense of, of security because we – probably remember that that's typically how trademarking works for us here, right? And that we think that we're safe by just going ahead and using it and then eventually getting around to trademarking. But that's actually not true because of the international risks. Yeah, well, there's, so there's two ways that's not true. So, yes, it's not true that well, – uh, let's start with this. Most people are not aware, actually, that in the U.S. you don't need a registration to own rights. So m most of my clients – come to me from a starting point assuming you need to own a registration to, to own rights, and I have to explain, well, actually, that's not true. It's not true for you, my client. It's also not true for other people who you might need to be worried about um, in the United States. But I don't want to say that all, everything I just said about unregistered rights in the U.S. and not talk about registration in the U.S. because that would be missing very important uh, material to consider. Um, so registration in the U.S. is obviously available. And it actually turns out to be very important with regard to how you can own rights. So I said you can own rights without a registration. Um, but if you get a registration, those rights come with a lot of benefits at some point. The biggest benefit in most scenarios that I've experienced, at least, for registration in the U.S. is actually quite similar to registration in the rest of the world. Basically, registration in the U.S., will give you the right to use your mark throughout the United States. In other words, the geographic limitation that I mentioned that's associated with unregistered rights goes away with registration. And the way that works is actually much more similar to the first-to-file rule that I talked about in the rest of the world. The reason for that is, under United States law, when you file a trademark registration application, and assuming you ultimately get the registration, so there's a lot of things that can happen to sort of prevent that, but let's just assume you apply and you get the registration. The filing date of your application under U.S. law is treated as the date you use the mark throughout the United States. The legal term for that is called constructive use. So we sort of assume you made use. It's like a fake use concept, okay? So if you've used the mark throughout the United States, then you own those rights based on use throughout the United States. And that's sort of the most basic reason why a registration in the U.S. gives you the right to expand throughout the United States. It's this constructive use notion. Now, there's there, plenty of wrinkles. Right, oh, well, I just want to say there's some really important wrinkles to constructive use. I'm not going to get into all of them. But the most important one, unfortunately, is that your constructive use rights, these rights that seem to give you the right to expand throughout the United States, are not good against anybody who themselves began their own use 
and created their own rights ahead of the application filing date. Okay, so um, there's a lot of wrinkles and scenarios that can come up, and a lot of what we do as lawyers is a type of work called searching and clearance that's intended to evaluate the lay of the land about existing uses and whether a registration is going to be available or subject to challenge. But in the most basic sense, like the first to file, you must have a registration system in most countries. The U.S. comes with, the U.S. law gives many benefits that are similar that are associated with registration, particularly as of the filing date. Very interesting. So when, when you do um, go international, which countries do you find are really the most important to trademark in? Let's say you do have a limited budget or you want to have kind of a rollout strategy. Are there some that you should really focus on because they're, they're just a little bit riskier? Um, yeah, uh, there are. And I want to talk about that in two ways. I think the way you are asking the question might be specific countries, and I'm going to get to that. That will be the second way. Um, but I actually think it's more useful um, and more important to talk about um, what are key countries or what countries are important in a more category-type way. And this is the reason for that is, is that when you come up with a trademark protection strategy, for an organization, an international registration and protection strategy. You obviously are making choices at all times. What countries and why? You know, why are you going to allocate resources to getting a registration in a particular country? Okay. So the category notion to me is the first thing that drives that. Um, and sort of there's generally three accepted categories that are the reasons or kinds of things you would think about when you decide which countries to apply it. Okay. So the first category tends to be key countries of sales or anticipated sales. Where are you? Where are you doing business? Okay. Um, and so in most situations, you're going to put at the highest priority of where to seek registration those key countries. Now, you might sell in five countries, and two of them might only fall into that key category, right? Well, the ones that are real priority. You might have very limited sales in three countries, and so you might decide, well, we'll register in the two and we'll put the other three on hold for now because we don't want to spend all of that money in those five countries. We'll focus on just the two, okay? Um, you might anticipate sales becoming, uh, starting in a country and becoming really significant down the road. Well, at some point down the road, then you need to maybe reconsider and go back and consider that country a key country and apply to register. Okay. So that's the first category. These are countries where you're present selling, all right? The second category is a little more interesting to me. It's where you are manufacturing. Um, and historically, this has been really important in places like China. Um, and where you're manufacturing is important because sometimes you're manufacturing in a country but not selling in that country. And in that circumstance, it can be very important, if not necessary, to have a registration to protect your ability to manufacture and ship the products out of the country. Trademark lawyers often refer to this as a defensive type trademark registration. That means that the motivation for the registration is not necessarily to protect your brand in that country, to protect your ability to sell in that country, and to stop infringers in that country, which is what most people typically think of as the reason for getting a trademark registration. You want to sell and be able to stop other people. That's often it. The defensive idea is that, well, we, not, we might not be selling in a but we are manufacturing there. If we don't get a registration, it's possible somebody else could, and they might try to use that against us, meaning filing a lawsuit for infringement, to stop our manufacturing activity. And again, this has happened many times in China. So um, uh, the Chinese market has changed, obviously, because now it's, the economy has grown so much that China is not just a country of manufacture, it's also a country of sales. So you don't just have the defensive rationale, but historically it's been one of the types of countries where a company might have a defensive rationale, and in that circumstance, having a registration in China becomes critical. Uh, otherwise, your actual ability to manufacture and ship your products can be at risk. Um, and so going back to these categories, the first one was the key country to sale of presence, the second one would be countries of manufacture and the defensive strategy. Um, become really important. And then the third one, and this may only apply mostly to consumer product companies, 
So I'm sure a lot of your clients are going to be in the service industry, and this may not be as important for them. But the third general category of countries that become important for registration are countries where counterfeiting is common. Okay? And by counterfeiting, I don't just mean somebody's using a similar mark for a competitive product. That's a more standard trademark infringement problem that you want to stop. Counterfeiting is someone's creating fake versions of your product uh, and presenting them as yours. Okay. And there's some countries where that's very common. Actually, it's very common all over the world. Um, but some countries, are, it's more common than others, and some countries have more counterfeiting manufacturing, not just sales, but manufacturing than others. And so if you're in an industry where counterfeiting is significant or a significant concern, or even if you're in that industry but you're not big enough to be counterfeited yet, so for a consumer product company that's small but growing, hopes to have a big brand, they might not get counterfeited at the beginning. Because counterfeiters only do counterfeiting because it's profitable. So if the brand's not popular, the counterfeits won't be very profitable either. But if a brand grows and gets hot, especially if it's cheap to manufacture the goods, counterfeiting almost always follows. And so countries where counterfeiting is prevalent or possible isn't the third category of a key kind of, of an important type of country where you want to get protection. Okay. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, so that was sort of the first thing I said was I was going to talk about categories of countries, but then I'm going to talk a little bit about specific countries too. Um, and most countries around the world have very similar broad concepts around trademark law. You need a registration to own rights, to prove a enforcement matter, to win an enforcement matter, you need to prove that there's going to be confusion, that the marks themselves are confusingly similar. And those legal principles get applied differently everywhere, but they're the general concepts that apply around the world. Okay. But in a few countries, there's some special consideration. By far, the one that stands out like a sore thumb is China, um, both because it's a very critical country for manufacturing, and as I noted, obviously becoming increasingly critical for sales. Okay. And historically, China's trademark laws and intellectual property enforcement rules and processes have been lacking and convoluted. They're becoming less lacking, uh, but they're still convoluted. Um, and there's been problems in China for a long time, so there's been counterfeiting problems. Um, what is known as a squatter problem, which is this notion of someone registering a mark to then hold it out against you, since hold it hostage against the company, has happened over time. There's two kinds of squatters. There's the ones that have no interest in the business at all and aren't actually themselves selling anything. Those are the classic squatter. But sometimes in China, competitors of a company will register the marks okay, of their competitors. A company might register the marks of their competitors to block them entering the Chinese market. So that's also happened. Um, so China becomes a priority for those kinds of reasons. Um, the actual registration system in China is itself somewhat distinct, convoluted, um, for a variety of reasons um, that I don't won't go into too much detail here. It's just important to know that registrations in China themselves come with a lot of fine details and technicalities. Um, and then there are language issues in China that can affect or make registration there very important. Um, and there's two kinds of ways that can come up. Like the English, let's say it's an English language mark, that word might have a bad meaning or connotation in the Chinese market, and that might impact whether you want to consider a different mark or something, other strategy or approach in China. Another language issue that comes up, and this is the one I think is most often overlooked, is that in the Chinese market, you need to consider whether you want a Chinese character version of your brand in addition to the English language or the Latin character version of your brand, the Latin alphabet version of your brand. Um, and this can occur in two ways. One, do you want to create that Chinese character version yourself? And if you do, what's it going to be? So you can come up with different words, and there's lots of great stories out there you can read up on if you Google it about companies that have selected strange or unfortunate Chinese character versions of their marks. Um, that have bad meanings in the Chinese language or among Chinese consumers. Another thing that happens in China with language and Chinese character marks is that the company, the brand owner, itself might not want to have a Chinese character version. But sometimes 
consumers themselves or retailers of the products that are being sold will create or come up with, just because that's what they do, their own Chinese character version. And that becomes de facto one of the marks for the brand just because that's what's being used. In that circumstance, the brand needs to be aware of it and needs to register it. Or they need to be concerned that somebody else is going to do it. Uh, and so that has also happened. It's something that also can happen when a company is not really paying attention to the Chinese market well enough. Um, and then just finally in China, litigation and enforcement of your rights uh, is just what I would just call a minefield of complexity and expense. Um, and uh, the rules there tend to favor Chinese companies or individuals. Um, so the best thing you can do about China is be extremely proactive, uh, make the investments so that you have security there if you ever think it's going to be an important market. If it's never going to be an important market, obviously then it's lower on the priority list. But uh, for lots of companies, it is. Um, is there any so way to reserve your trademarks? Anything you can do maybe before you're ready? Can you put it on hold or, or is it truly something you just would have to do completely at one time? Um, well, so there is no sort of notion of putting it on hold. The only way to get rights is to apply to register it. Remember, go back, going back to that first to file rule that I talked about. That's really how you reserve your rights. You have to apply to register. There's no other way to do it. Um, and the important thing to know is that in most countries, you don't need to use your trademark to get a registration. In most countries, you file. And assuming you get past whatever hurdles there are to getting a registration, there's no confusing marks. There's no inherent problems with the mark that make it unregisterable in the country. Once you apply and get your registration, that's how you reserve your rights. Um, I was going to talk the next about a specific country. It turns out the U.S. is a bit of an outlier in that regard. Because in the United States, to get a registration, you actually have to show use of the mark. Now, this turns out to be true only for U.S.-based companies, but I'm going to assume the audience is mostly that for the sake of this discussion, okay, because non-U.S. companies have a way to get registrations in the U.S. without showing use, uh, but I won't discuss that in detail here. Um, so the reason why that matters is in the U.S., uh, unlike these other countries, if you haven't used your mark, you're never going to get a registration. Now, the important rule in the U.S. that allows you to actually apply to get a registration before you begin your use. An application in the United States that is filed before use is called an intent to use application. And it's based on your intent, your current intent, to use the mark in the future. So you can apply to get a registration in the U.S. on that basis. And if you remember what I said before, that the application date in the U.S is treated as the date you actually began use of your mark throughout the U.S. In other words, the application date is the date that your national rights will begin. That's true for these intent-to-use applications. But the application, the intent-to-use application, it's also called an ITU application, will never become a registration until you demonstrate use of the mark. So you can file the application before use and get that filing date, that critical filing date, but ultimately, once your application goes through the process, the trademark office in the United States will send you a document that says, now you have to demonstrate use. And once you do, you complete the registration process. So to reserve rights anywhere, an application is critical. And then in most countries, you can actually get a registration without demonstrating use. So you can get the protection you want just by file. In the U.S., for U.S. companies, you can get that same protection if you're using the mark and you file. You can also file based on future use, but as long as you show use later to get that registration, that application date will be the date that you have effective rights throughout the country. Very interesting. How long does it take to get a trademark in different countries? Are they all about the same, or is there? Um, does it depend on different variables? Um, uh, before I answer, I want to just quickly just note that issue you asked about before, and that is on this first-to-file concept. And I just want to remind the listeners how all of everything I said is true for them as brand owners, but it's also true for other companies <laughs> so or competitors or squatters, this notion of first-to-file. Um, and so that's why it's such an important consideration, because it's not just that you are getting your own rights, but you're making sure somebody else 
doesn't do something to stop you from getting into that market, either intentionally, because they're doing something calculated against you, or inadvertently, someone just happens to start their own business in that company, in that country, that has a similar or the same mark, uh, and they apply to register, because that's what they do in their country, just like uh, many people do in their country. So um, this notion of reserving rights doesn't really exist accepted with an application, and that's why the first-to-file rule becomes so important. Um, but your question, and I think with a lot of international, well, with all the international trade shows and with all the communication and, and featuring new products, even smaller, younger companies are really going to be much more apt to be on someone's radar in international markets because everyone's looking for the next up-and-coming thing to see if they can get some ideas. Yeah, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that with one of your questions towards the end, but um, that's a really important point. Is basically exposure creates this risk that somebody else might see that you're valuable or important and do something that can cause you problems down the road in their country. Okay. What's most interesting to me about that is how much that problem has increased in the last 10 or 15 years with obviously the growth of the internet and in particular social media. Some brand that is completely unknown outside of a local region, even, even in the U.S., a small city, can become national in the U.S. quickly or instantly. It can become international if, like, a Twitter meme becomes something that is huge globally. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> this brand that's tiny and still growing or not even just getting started, that really has no footprint anywhere, and but for the Internet would have no awareness. Nobody would have ever heard of them anywhere. Now, all of a sudden, they're known everywhere. And uh, here I am saying, well, there's risk in any country where you might want to be or where somebody might want to uh, do something sort of like a squatter type thing. Now that risk can grow instantly. Um, and so obviously you can't protect against every single circumstance and you can't file everywhere all the time because it's too expensive. I'm just pointing out, as I think you're getting to with your, your, your observation, is that that risk doesn't just come from trade shows nowadays. Right? It can come from all sorts of places and it can happen so quickly um, that it's right. a little daunting in a sense. Um, well, I know that there are a lot of companies internationally paying attention to companies that are getting funded everywhere. And so they're not only looking at, you know, what is their name, but then what kind of innovative technology or, you know, product are they creating and what kind of traction are they getting in their little home market, then that's, that's truly something to be aware of, that there, there's just a lot of attention being placed on those kind of actionable things like funding, like some sort of media attention, like you said, some sort of social media meme that just, is surprising and exciting, but then it, it exposes you in this way. Yes. Yes. Um, so you, all right, well, let's go back to some kind of like technical things. So specifically, all right, so now you recognize that you need a trademark. What are the next steps? What does it take? What What are the things that they need to prepare for? You know, kind of give us a sense of what someone would really need to go through to create this this strategy, and then really kind of start the plan of of trademarking in these different countries. Um, well, so from a planning perspective, I would generally refer back to thinking about um, this notion of key countries. Okay or the categories of countries, key countries of sales, countries of manufacture, counterfeiting countries, other special considerations. Um, and internally within an organization, whether it's a tiny organization that's a startup or a large one, there needs to be some strategic plan around uh, and proactive plan, one that's ongoing, meaning periodically revisited around this notion of where your brand is going in, in the world. It's also conscious of thinking about what your brand is. So for many organizations, there's the main trademark that's sort of the house mark. This might be a brand or a logo or a trademark that's on every single product across the range. That might be the most important um, of all trademarks to consider registering. But the same company might have other trademarks for some of their products. So um, for Adidas, for example, the Adidas brand is that core brand but they have a shoe called the Superstar, and it's just one of their shoes. Um, and so revisiting or thinking about on a proactive way uh, from a marketing and sales perspective, and then also since manufacturing matters from a logistics and operations perspective, which parts, which brand marks matter the most 
um, is another way to factor in how you make start making decisions. And then there's budgeting considerations. Um, and the cost of doing getting your registration and applying vary from country to country. I generally tell clients to assume uh, somewhere between uh, 1,000 to 2,000, maybe 2,500 per registration in a country, but that is an extremely rough estimate if I'm just talking about the world. I, I can provide cost estimates on a country-by-country -country basis um, when necessary. But the important thing is just to be thinking about it periodically and also allocating budget towards it uh, periodically, um, either on, usually on an annual basis. That's how larger companies think about it. But just making sure you are not just thinking about it on day one or at the earliest stage of the organization, but you're thinking about it on an ongoing basis and making sure someone is assigned responsibility for doing that. Um, and also developing internal processes for people to think about it. So in a larger organization, you might have a marketing department that's come up with a new tagline and they don't tell the legal department or they don't tell their outside counsel if there is no in-house legal department. And all of a sudden, there's a new trademark type use that's going to occur, the tagline is think just do it or something like that, is a new kind of trademark and it's been conceived by the marketing group and it's going to get implemented and the legal function doesn't know about it. Um, and so none of the things I've mentioned already up to now about getting protection and ensuring you can use your mark in another country have even been considered. So developing these processes and, and educating your employees about the need to consider this is a key component of an effective strategy in terms of how to think about approaching the situation. Um, so I would say those are the number one things, just again, really focusing on what parts of the brand matter, rethinking the country approach and what your key countries to think about, and then there's the whole internal component of it, and that is periodically rethinking and thinking about the issues, having someone who's responsible for doing it, and developing process around that. That's great advice. So once you've done that, what could someone expect as far as the time that it would take to, obviously in the U.S. it's the initial registration, but in other countries, um, what do you think they should allocate as far as time to be protected? Well, it's going to, like most things in this field, unfortunately, varies widely. Um, so from country to country, some countries are relatively quick. The U.S. Is, has a huge bureaucracy around its trademark operations or its trademark registration operations, but it's actually reasonably fast. In the U.S., if you apply to register and there are no objections and the application goes through plainly, you typically can get a registration in eight months, maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter, depending on their workload in the office. Um, some countries are years, and most countries are somewhere in between. Um, again, it really just depends on the workload within the office and the nature of what, you know, how the government of that country allocates resources towards the trademark registration uh, department in the country. Um, uh, yeah, that's just, just lots of variation there. You had mentioned China was one of those high-risk countries because it met a number of those reasons for um, being at risk. So how long, for example, would it take if you identify China? That seems to be one of the countries that most people are really interested in. Yeah, so in China, um, this again varies widely, but um, even within China, this is going to vary, and that be, that's because the examiners, the, the, the people within the trademark office themselves take different amounts of time. However, um, assuming it goes through without an objection and problems, you're looking at around a year and a half-ish, okay, in China. Um, in all countries, if there's an objection by the trademark office, some other technical problem, it can derail that timeline by a long time. Okay, especially in China, it can take a long time. Um, the key thing to remember, though, is that while timing matters, because you want that registration if you ever do need to enforce your rights, but if you go back to that core concept of priority, let's assume you want a registration in case you need to enforce the rights, but you don't actually need to enforce the rights for years, or maybe never. Okay? The key thing is that filing date, the first-to-file rule in most countries, um, that gets you a priority, we call it a priority date, it gets you those rights. So even if it takes a long time in the country to get your registration, the registration rights that you get will have an, they'll be say they'll date back or relate back or have an effective date of the application date. Okay, so the delays themselves can matter. 
Like I said, if you need to enforce while the application is pending, you would wish that it happened more quickly. But if you have actual no need to use the registration that you ultimately want, it's the filing date that ends up being the most important date for you when it comes to the effective date of your rights. Right, especially if it takes that long. That seems like a good idea to do fairly quickly then. Um, well, sure, that's right. So this notion of, like I said before, of having internal you know, resources devoted to periodically and proactively thinking about this and having departments communicate internally with each other on this and developing process, it's designed to trigger uh, an awareness, a need, and then a decision around whether to do something at the earliest possible time. Um, so that if you think there's something new that you need to worry about, a new mark, a new product, you're entering a new market, that sort of stuff. You're talking, remember at the beginning, I talked about you're speaking to a distributor, you haven't even entered the market. Negotiations are at the earliest stage. Legal, whoever has the legal function, and even if it's outside counsel, might really want to know about that to advise you about whether to get a registration in that country. Absolutely. What have I not asked? I, ma I imagine there are other things that are really important for our listeners to know about. Is there anything that you'd like to make sure that we specifically address? Yeah, I think the most important big sort of big picture thing is the process around uh, getting a registration. Okay. Um, so, that, uh, again, I'm going to assume a U.S. company, and this is true. What I'm going to say is roughly true for most companies around the world, but um, it's just easier to discuss it from one country's perspective to use it as examples and things like that. Um, how do you apply? Okay. Um, well, in the U.S., if you want to apply to register a mark, your company can do it itself, or you can typically companies work with a lawyer, and the application gets filed. Um, and every country in the world, for the most part that I know of, has a trademark office. So that trademark office receives applications that are filed to register the mark in that country. Um, those applications are, are known among trademark lawyers as national applications. It's a national application. It was filed by a lawyer in that country usually, and it applies only to that country, to that country's trademark office. Okay. And again, you can do that around the world, um, and there's this patchwork of laws that applies in each uh, country. But there's a separate system that's important to know about, um, and that separate system exists alongside of the one I just described. It exists alongside these national registration possibilities. The se separate system is more of an international registration possibility. Um, and the system is called the Madrid Protocol. Okay? Um, it's an tr international trademark treaty that has created an ability to register marks in multiple countries at once using a centralized filing system. Um, the Madrid Protocol Treaty is managed by an organization called the World Intellectual Property Organization. I'm going to shorthand that to WIPO. It's based in Switzerland. Um, so WIPO administers this treaty around the world that allows people, companies, to get registrations in other countries without having to use a lawyer in that particular country. And I'm going to explain that process a bit, but it's sort of showing you the big picture of it. Um, not every country is a member of the Madrid Protocol. And I should also mention there's another treaty called the Madrid Agreement. Uh, the U.S. is not a member of that treaty. Other countries are, though. Um, and WIPO oversees that. So I'm going to focus on the Madrid Protocol. Um, to get a registration in a country using the Madrid Protocol, the country has to be a member and the signing of the treaty. And so I'll just give you some examples. There's more than 80 countries, I think, that are members of the Madrid Protocol. But... Typically important countries are China, Japan, South Korea, India, most of the EU countries, and actually I'm going to talk about the EU system itself. There's an EU-wide trademark you can get called the community trademark. The EU community trademark itself is a member of the Madrid Protocol. Um, Mexico is a member, but most Latin American countries are not. Okay, um, And so the system this Madrid protocol, allows you to get registrations around the world in a way I, we typically think of it in a metaphorical sense as a hub and spoke system. So if you're a company, let's just, I'm going to use Apple as an example. You're Apple and you want, you own a registration in the United States and you want to get coverage around the world. Okay. One option to do so is to have lawyers in each country that you want to apply to register in file in their country. 
And that's that national system that I talked about before. The other option comes under this Madrid protocol. It's a long story about how it works in the nuts and bolts, so I'm just going to cover the big picture. Basically, you need to have a U.S. application or registration to start with. Okay. So the only way to use the Madrid protocol is by having an application or registration in what's called your home country. Since I'm talking about the U.S. being the example, the U.S. is the home country for this example. So you need to have an application or registration in the U.S. to even start the process to use the Madrid protocol. If you only have an application, as you'll see later, it has to eventually become a registration in the U.S. to even have this work. Okay. So let's assume that Apple has a registration in the United States covering computers and cell phones, and they want to get coverage in China, Japan, and South Korea. The Madrid Protocol allows them to do that using only a U.S. lawyer. A U.S. lawyer can make a filing. It happens to start through the U.S. Trademark Office, and the U.S. Trademark Office transmits that filing to WIPO in Switzerland. And the first stage of that is to get what's called an international registration. That's shorthanded among trademark lawyers as an IR, international registration. I told, said before that the Madrid Protocol is kind of like a hub and spoke system. The international registration, the IR, is like the hub of the system. So you file this application through the U.S. Trademark Office. It gets transmitted to WIPO in Switzerland. WIPO issues this IR, okay, the hub, or sometimes I refer to it as kind of an umbrella registration. The IR itself doesn't give you any rights anywhere. It's just the hub that allows you to, in a sense, have spokes or extensions into the countries that you want coverage in through Madrid. So you can file for this IR, and you can then specify countries that you want coverage in, and those countries end up being the spokes. And so you, let's say that Apple specified China, Japan, and South Korea when they filed it. WIPO, the organization that oversees this system, will tell the trademark offices of China, Japan, and South Korea that this U.S. company, Apple, wants registration protection in each country. And because of this treaty, each country will take WIPO's communication. It's like really, they're just sending an application. They'll take the application, and they will treat it as if it was a national application. They'll treat it as if it was filed through a lawyer in China, South Korea, or Japan without this treaty going on at all. And they'll review it. They might issue an objection. If they don't, they'll issue protection. It's called a grant of protection, just like a registration in that country. They'll tell WIPO that that happened, and WIPO will tell you you now have coverage in a particular country. And this takes a long time to happen. Okay. Um, so by the treaty, each country has up to 18 months even to review the application. They don't even have to look at it until 18 months. And then it goes through the process of review that every other application goes through. But the key thing to know is that this system is available at least to member countries. And as long as you meet the requirements, having a registration um, or an application to start the process, and then getting this IR through WIPO and designating some countries, that's the way to get coverage in other countries without having to make national filings, okay? without having to use lawyers in each country. Um, and there's a bunch of pros and cons to that. All right? So, um, well, actually, I want to just back up. Te one technical thing to note is you don't have to designate every Madrid Protocol country, and you don't have to designate all of the countries that you want coverage in at one time. You can start the process in Japan and South Korea and China, and then later decide you want coverage in the U.K., and so later you will make a different filing to extend protection in the U.K. It's the same hub, just to create a new spoke. And there's filing fees for all that and process around it. The important thing to note is you can use this international registration to expand your coverage throughout the world, or at least among member countries, over time, okay, that it's not a one-off one thing, right? Um, the Madrid protocol system is really important, and it has some very important pros and also some important cons to consider, because um, once clients learn about it, when they hear the first pro, they immediately want to do it. Um, and it, many clients, that's the right approach, but then when you hear the cons, there's some other reasons why you might not. Um, the biggest pros happen to be cost, okay? So lawyers obviously charge fees for their services, um, and anytime you file a national application, the lawyer in that country is going to charge you a fee. They'll charge you the filing fee to make the filing, but they will charge their own fee for the service of doing the filing. 
And typically, most U.S. companies or many U.S. companies don't work directly with the lawyer in the other country. They'll have their U.S. lawyer do that. So I'm, I myself have many clients who have asked me to make national filings around the world, and I'll hire a lawyer in that other country, and that lawyer will send me a bill for their service. I will pass that on to the client, but I charge the client for my service of working with that lawyer. So these national filings can have multiple layers of cost. Well, the International Madrid Protocol System avoids one of those important layers. You recall I said that the U.S. company can have their U.S. lawyer file through the U.S. Trademark Office, this IR, the International Registration, that hub, set some spokes out there, designate some countries to get coverage in, and all I said was that WIPO, the organization that oversees the protocol, sends that to the Trademark Office in that country. There's no lawyer in that country involved in that stage. Okay. So to get the application filed through Madrid, you don't need a lawyer in the other country. So you avoid that legal service fee by the extra lawyer. And I read an estimate that someone had done that if you use the Madrid protocol system to file in every member country, I think it was 80 countries at the time, um, it would have costed around $20,000. And this is a three-year-old estimate, I think, so the numbers obviously might not line up. But you could get coverage in all 80 countries for $20,000. If you made the exact same filings but did them without Madrid, meaning you made national filings and you used lawyers in each country, it would cost $100,000. Okay. Now, that's the biggest possible scale, right? We're talking about every country. This, the scale goes down each time you take a country away, so the savings goes down. But the point is there's huge cost savings that are available through Madrid. And those cost savings don't just exist at the application stage. When you have to renew your registration, because one thing that happens with trademark registrations is they expire, so they need to be renewed. And there's fees associated with that, with the trademark offices and with the lawyer that you work with. Well, through Madrid, all you need to do is renew that hub. You only need to renew the international registration. You don't have to file separate renewals in each country. So it's much cheaper to renew coverage around the world that was achieved through Madrid Protocol because there's only one renewal. It's also much simpler from a resource and paperage type perspective, meaning you don't have lots of administrative stuff to deal with in each country. In contrast, if you have to renew registrations that are were filed on a national basis, um, then you have to renew them in each country and hire a lawyer to do that. And again, there's cost layers associated with that. Um, so those are the main pros, streamline, simplicity, and cost. But the big, the big con is the main one that comes up for people and the reason why some companies don't use it for every mark or even some marks is the legal concept called dependency in central attack. And the biggest thing I'll just say about that is, I said before, to start this IR process, you need a U.S. application registration, and that the application has to become a registration. Well, the Madrid Protocol system has a really important feature that says that, that registration, the one that was the home country registration, the one in the U.S. for the U.S. company, has to stay valid and active for five years for the international registration to be maintained and all of the spokes that came out of the international registration. If the home country registration is attacked or if the application that was the basis for the initial Madrid protocol filing never becomes a registration in the U.S. because the trademark office objected or for some other reason because a third party opposed registration, if that happens, all of the Madrid protocol filing, the whole hub and all of the spokes dissolves. So you have this five-year period where all of that can go away. Um, when that happens, you can get the coverage in the international markets that were the spokes, but it's a very expensive and time-consuming process called conversion to do that. So the short of that is that there's a risk period for five years that your international registration and all the spokes that you got out of that hub international registration go away. For many marks, that's not a problem. They're never going to be challenged. They're going to be registered in the U.S., no problem. But if you've ever had any experience in the U.S., sometimes marks get objected to by the trademark office, either because there's a similar mark or there's some problem with the trademark itself that's objectionable. Sometimes competitors or third parties attack the application, try to block it from becoming registered in the U.S. And when those circumstances exist, or I think they might exist for a client, for example, um, and I'm telling my client, I want you to get a U.S. registration, but there's some risk. I'm not sure you're going to get it. Under those circumstances, I don't advise clients to use the Madrid protocol because I'm worried that they will spend the money on it and have that money end up just being wasted if there's potential problems getting their home country registration. Um, 
that's a long story, and I'm sorry for that. There's some convoluted parts to it. But it's just important to note that this Madrid protocol exists. It has huge potential benefits, but then it has some potential downsides that make it challenging. Um, and so uh, it's just always something to consider. And when your clients, Globex clients, are working with their attorneys, it's important to keep these options in mind and not just jump to a conclusion that, hey, we should use the Madrid protocol because we'll save money. Because there's times when it actually becomes a problem and it can cost you more money in the long run because of this ability to be challenged. Okay, so it's a case-by-case -case basis, and I would say with advice from a lawyer who is telling you how it works and giving you advice on risk relating to your home country registration. Absolutely, that's great advice, and, and it's really important, I think, for everyone to understand the nuances of that as well. So our podcast is getting to where we're close to the end, but one of the things that you were really great about, you shared some resources with me that I found to be incredibly helpful, uh, especially, for example, the China Law Blog. Are there any other um, really great blogs or books or podcasts that you can suggest for our listeners that just to learn more or to keep kind of, you know, absorbing and, and gaining in knowledge as, you know, as they you know, as their business grows and as they look to expand? Sure. Yeah. So first of all, if you want to have any information about China, whether it be trademarks or not, anything legal, uh, the China Law Blog is fantastic, um, I think, as you've mentioned. Um, other resources, and I'll just say generally, if you Google trademark issues and you have a good search, you're going to get tons of hits that seem relevant. And many of those hits will be great. Great resources, uh, concise, they're correct legally, they're giving good advice, they're describing the situation clearly and well. Unfortunately, I would say for every one of those, there's a good three to four that I would not say that about. It's not so great. Um, so you always have to have a filter, and sometimes in legal situation, with legal information, it's hard for a layperson to have a filter. Uh, you don't know what's right and wrong necessarily. So there's challenges associated with that. The ones that I think that are most reliable, um, from the U.S. side, with the U.S. focus, um, I'm actually rely on other law firms. So I have subscribed to, and there's many of these that you can do, but the two that I use um, are uh, Finnegan Henderson is a law firm in Washington, D.C. It's one of the best IP or intellectual property firms in the world. You can subscribe to an email blast they send out whenever there's something important that they think needs to be written about. It's called an incontestable newsletter, incontestable. Um, and the firm name is Finnegan, F-I-N-N-E-G-A-N, Henderson. Um, likewise, the law firm Kilpatrick Townsend Stockton has something they call their Knowledge Transfer IP newsletter. And that's my old employer, but I subscribe to that as well. And they don't send that out maybe quarterly at most. But they have summaries that are really, really helpful of legal issues and cases. Um, there's something called the Trademark Trial and Appeal Blog or TTAB Blog. Trademark Trial and Appeal Board is part of the U.S. Trademark Office. The TTAB Blog writes about cases inside the trademark office about registration issues in the United States. And it's an invaluable and great resource. Um, and then otherwise internationally, so you said China, from, there's lots of international resources, but I think the most well-known, certainly reliable, is one called IPCAT. And that's cat with a K. Um, and so if you search IPCAT, one word with a K, instead of a C for cat, you will find this. Or you can go to ipkitten.blogspot.com. Um, and the writer of that blog writes not just on trademarks, but on intellectual property issues generally, so patents, copyrights, and other things. Um, uh, and most of the focus is on the UK and the EU, maybe some other international, but uh, those are the key ones. So those are the ones that I think are, well, at least that I rely on and I trust. Mm, fantastic advice. Thank you. Thank you so very much. I will um, transcribe this information for our listeners and make sure that they have access to those really great resources. So that's very helpful. Um, so I'm going to thank you, Mike, for joining us today. That was a really, really insightful, um, certainly a little overwhelming in the sense that I have a lot of work to do, and I imagine a lot of companies do, but it's so helpful and so important to know, and it definitely will help us kind of define our strategy, and I'm sure it's going to help a lot of other companies as well. For, li for listeners, please check out Mike's company, idealegal.com. Uh, he's certainly a wonderful resource and a great trademark attorney, as I can attest to. 
And then join us next time on Go Global, Go Big podcast and powered by Globix for more insights and more helpful advice for taking your company into global markets. So this is Anka Corbin saying ciao. Until next time. 